0: Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Suda, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat, I'm a journalist. He's the man credited with ending the Vietnam War. And last week, Daniel Ellsberg passed away at the age of 92. Today, we're going to learn more about the man and why he was once labelled the most dangerous in America. Keith, the thing Daniel Ellsberg is known for is the leak of the Pentagon Papers. What were they?
1: By way of background, Daniel Ellsberg was a very talented student who um, collected a number of degrees. Also, he'd served and become an officer in the US Armed Forces and began his career in the Armed Forces and then later working for a Department of Defence research tank as a very hardline Cold War warrior. Mm. And he then transitioned across and ended up as a hero of the peace movement and on the left. I met him in 1988 when he made that transition across. So he was employed at RAND, which is... A Defense Department Research Institute in California. And one of the projects he became involved in was for Robert McNamara, who was the outgoing US Secretary of Defense. Robert McNamara was haunted by the failure of the Vietnam War. One of the standard books on Vietnam, David Halberstam, talks about the best and the brightest. So John Kennedy, when he became president, wanted to recruit the best and the brightest. And so McNamara was one of the best and the brightest, super smart individual, did very well again at Harvard, and then went into ultimately the Ford Motor Car Corporation. And although he'd always been a Republican, the Democrat president, John Kennedy, asked him to take charge of the Defense Department. Mm -hmm. And McNamara got involved in the war in Vietnam and was convinced at the beginning that the Americans could win. After all, they were wealthy, well-organized, well-managed, etc. and they ended up failing. And by the time he was ready to leave the Pentagon, McNamara was haunted by the failure. Where had America gone wrong? Had people like him gone wrong? After all, they were the best and the brightest. Mm-hmm. Where had they gone wrong? And so he asked Rand, this um, defense think tank, just to get access to all the documents on the Vietnam War from the American side and then just go through them and work out where things had gone wrong for the Americans. And that was a huge research project. And so by the time that he had left, the project was well underway. He then went on to become president of the World Bank. So one of the people doing the research was Daniel Ellsberg. And Ellsberg, remember, was a a hawk out on the right and was horrified by what he had seen in Vietnam. And then he reads these documents and that confirms his suspicions about what things had gone wrong in Vietnam. And in particular, the Pentagon Papers tracked away a document, moved through the bureaucracy. Some of us still use the Pentagon Papers in our classes Mm. because it's a great case study whereby you can follow a field officer's report on the ground in Vietnam and you follow that document all the way through as it goes up to the desk of the President of the United States, Lyndon Mm -hmm. Johnson. And you can see how as the document moves up through the bureaucracy that it was being amended at each point. So you've got this field officer saying, we're not going to win this war. We're doing so badly, we're going to lose. So that's the original report, and then you work your way up and you see by the time it reaches the president's desk, he's going to receive what he wants to hear, which is namely the Americans are doing well. Yeah. Now, there were 7,000 pages of documents. It runs into volumes of material. And Daniel Ellsberg, when he was sort of collating this along with some of his colleagues, were just horrified to see the extent to which the US government had lied to Americans about how well the war was going. And also the fact that people within the bureaucracy had known quite early on that the Americans were losing, and yet they continued to tell, in effect, lies Mm. to the politicians who only wanted to, to hear what they wanted to hear. Sure. So you tailored the intelligence to fit what the president wanted to hear. So everybody was lying. And in the meantime, lots of people were suffering in Vietnam and so Daniel Ellsberg, in 1971, released these documents. So he went originally to politicians, and the politicians refused to pick up the matter. Remember, these were all classified documents, mm. a bit like the issue we're having with Trump at the moment, uh, classified documents. Nobody wanted to touch them. Ultimately, he ended up with Neil Sheehan, a journalist for the New York Times, and then when the pressure was on the Times to stop publishing it, it went to the Washington Post, the subject of a a Spielberg movie, by the way, with uh, Mrs. Graham standing up to President Nixon. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the documents then moved into the public sphere. Not the full public, there are just so many. took ages for the whole lot to be published. We had Senator Mike Gavel in Congress, who under parliamentary privilege was just able to read the documents into the congressional record. And he just went for hours. (laughs) 7,000 (laughs) pages. Reading the documents. Wow. So eventually the story came out. Now, In your introduction, you said he was the man who stopped the Vietnam War. That's his disappointment. He didn't stop the war. Mm. He's one of these people, very intense. I met him in 1988, very intense individual, probably a nightmare to live with, someone who took everything so seriously. Mm. He thought, well, if you publish the truth, as he saw it, about Vietnam, then suddenly the Americans will say, this is a terrible war, we've got to get out. But that's not how opinion gets swayed it's fine to tell the truth, but it's not always effective. And so Ellsberg was very disappointed that the risks that he took, he could have gone to jail for over 100 years, a bit like the Julian Assange issue that we're dealing with at the moment. He ran that huge risk and implicated some of his colleagues. And yet politicians wouldn't touch it. The media at the beginning were reluctant to take it on. And the irony really is that it got this important information, but people were too scared to publicise it. And it was never really acted upon. What Ellsberg wanted was for the general public to be so revolted by what they saw that they would insist on the Vietnam War ending. Well, we'd had these anti-war rallies going on for years by this time Mm. and no progress was being made. I might just say that for me, the irony of the whole story is that it ultimately brought down President Nixon. Now, Nixon's not involved in the Pentagon Papers. So these are documents at the time for Kennedy and Johnson. Yeah. So Nixon was in the White House when the documents started to be published, but he doesn't get a mention in the documents. When the Americans were, were, at the time that he was in office, he was just simply a vice president under Eisenhower. So we're talking about many years earlier. But the problem for Nixon is that allies, such as the Australian Prime Minister, complained to the White House saying, how can we have negotiations with you if they're going to end up on the front page of the Washington Post? Yeah. So there was pressure <laughs> on Nixon to rein in this guy. And, of course, the way that he did it led ultimately to Nixon being driven out of office. So it's an ironical situation. And the Osberg narrative is just so amazing when you look at the full story.
0: Mm. Some of the articles I read talked about how it shaped you know, the outcome of the war, did it? What, what impacts did it have in real words, if anything? On the, on the
1: war itself, I don't think it did that much. Remember, these are historical documents. Mm. The, these documents relate to how the war was escalated, the lies that were told. It certainly didn't affect the outcome of the war mm. um, in the sense that Ellsberg hoped that by publishing them, people would be suddenly horrified. And they were, well, they were shocked, I, I guess, at the time. But it didn't linger and and it didn't bring about. Remember, the papers came out in 71. The peace deal, so-called, was in 73. Yeah. And the Americans were not actually physically driven out of Vietnam until April the 30th, 1975. Mm. So this was three years after the papers had been published and yet the war was still raging. So it didn't have that impact on the war But of course, what was intriguing for me, um, just following up my comment about the demise of Richard Nixon politically, was that Nixon was under pressure to stop the leaks. He wanted the leaks to stop. As you said, at this time, Kissinger called him the most dangerous man in America. That's spot on Mm. because of the, the embarrassment that the political class were feeling about having their dirty laundry washed in public. And so Nixon created a plumber's unit to stop the leaks. There's a nice little bit of logic in the use of the term plumber's unit. It's there to stop the leaks. (laughs) And the first target was that of Daniel Ellsberg. Mm. Their hope was that they would want it to get dirt on him to be able to lower his prestige in the eyes of the media. And so they broke into his psychiatrists looking for documents showing this is a man who's clearly unbalanced. The document... Cabinet, by the way, is now in the Smithsonian Museum is it? in Washington, D.C. Wow, <laughs> that's cool. They didn't get much out of those documents, but it began this process which led ultimately to Watergate.
0: Yes. So the people
1: who were involved in that plumber's unit at the beginning continued their policy of looting and burglaring running across America. And then, of course, in June of 72, they got caught in the Watergate building burglary, that then led to a congressional inquiry and all sorts of things, and then ultimately to Richard Nixon's having to resign from office before he could actually go on trial Mm. in the impeachment process. So nobody at the time when the documents were produced were out to get Nixon. Nixon had simply prolonged the war for electoral purposes. Mm. They were close to getting it solved in 1968 at the time of Johnson finishing up in the White House. And Kissinger had gotten word to the North Vietnamese and the South Vietnamese, prolong the war, and we'll give each of you a better deal, particularly the South Vietnamese, prolong the war, get us past the election. President Nixon will look after you if he becomes president. So that war dragged on for another four years, and lots more people perished because of the skullduggery of Henry Kissinger, which we've looked at in the past, which is why he's not liked either. Uh, So... We had this weird situation that Nixon was brought down by the Pentagon Papers but was not directly involved in them because, as I say, he was out of office most of the time, when, well, all of the time with the period being examined by the Papers.
0: This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter and this week's episode is all about the man behind the Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg. Now, he faced a trial, didn't he, after this was leaked? Tell us about that.
1: So he went on trial, much as we're seeing a bit at the moment with the Assange case, but around the time that the trial was getting underway, there was also the inquiry into Watergate and the general feeling was the US government had no credibility Mm. to deal with Daniel Ellsberg having regard to what was going on in terms of burglarizing offices, et cetera. And so he was freed, as the co-accused was. Dr. Russo, they were both freed, and so they were fine in terms of not going to jail. But Daniel Ellsberg was never again employed. Now, he was lucky because his wife, Patricia Marks, is a very wealthy woman in her own right. She's still alive. By the way, Patricia Marks, the wife of Ellsberg, comes from a very distinguished family on good terms with the head of FBI. Okay. And so Richard Nixon created the Plumbers Unit because he couldn't trust the FBI. Wow. Because he said Ellsberg is As married links. to Patricia Marks. Wow. The family is close to Hoover. I can't trust the FBI to do the job. Therefore, I need to create my own private detective agency called the Plumbers Unit. Wow. It's amazing how these things sort of fit together.
0: Yeah. So what was the outcome of the trial and what happened to Ellsberg afterwards? Well,
1: Ellsberg unemployed effectively for the rest of his life, although he was very heavily involved in campaigns. As I say, I met him in 1988 at the UN disarmament special session of the General Assembly. So Ellsberg then became a campaigner, became a celebrity, obviously would have been earning money from his books and speaking conferences. So it wasn't as though you know, the life had been wasted. But it's a warning to whistleblowers that if you are a whistleblower, you will probably ruin your career prospects. Mm -hmm. Nobody want to employ you again. In his case, he took up this life of campaigning, including on the whole nuclear issue. So although he had made his name on the Vietnam War issue, he'd actually got a background dealing with nuclear war gaming from his work at the RAND think tank, the defence think tank. And so he then had a career, a life of campaigning, particularly on the peace issue and social justice issues. And as far as I can tell, it was campaigning pretty well up until the time that he died of cancer. So it had a very good inning. So he was, what, well into his 90s, I think, by the time. 92,
0: I believe. By the time he died. Yeah. So
1: it was a very active time. But he never got any other major full time posting, except, of course, serving on appropriate boards and committees dealing with peace and other issues.
0: What about the impacts on press freedom that came out of his trial? Was there any changes or any shift in how, you know, the public saw press freedom?
1: Well, I think that the trial, well, the releasing of the papers, reaffirms what the fathers of the US Constitution had in mind when they had the First Amendment right for freedom of speech, freedom Mm. of information. Thomas Jefferson, one of the authors of some of those early documents, took the view that people needed to have a free media. So this is a viewpoint from 1787, Mm. and this was reaffirmed in the Pentagon Papers case. Now, it's based, I think, on a wrong theory, namely that if you give information to people, suddenly it'll change their minds, suddenly it'll mobilise them. My favourite example is climate change, that we've been giving people information about climate change but it's only as their homes go underwater that suddenly they have an interest in climate change. So Information itself does not, in my view, motivate political change. But obviously to someone like Thomas Jefferson or Daniel Ellsberg, that's what you at the very least need. You need to be able to have people being well-informed about things. So the case back in the early 70s, dealing with the Pentagon Papers, reaffirmed the importance of press freedom and showed particularly the case of The Washington Post, as I say, immortalised in the Steven Spielberg movie, it showed how you had a person, Mrs Graham, who was willing to stand up to the US government and go ahead and publish documents. And so, for me, it just shows the importance of press freedom. And that is now all under threat in so many respects, as we become closer and closer towards becoming a police state, restrictions on what could be said, you know, you've already got disputes about what can be said in terms of political correctness. You've got the governments trying to clamp down on on certain stuff as well. I was living in the United States in 1970, and it was a different world back then in terms of greater respect for human rights, et cetera. Now we're, we're moving closer towards the techno authoritarianism that you associate with China.
0: Mm, interesting point. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was whistleblowers in general. Uh, he was obviously one of the first high profile whistleblowers. What do you think his story tells us about whistleblowers and their place in our society?
1: Well, I think they provide a very important role. Now, if you're in the bureaucracy, they're a pain in the rear end. (laughs) Um, But they play a very important role. It's a very courageous role. A lot of people, as we know, see all sorts of things and yet don't complain. That's right. Don't go public because they're just too scared to speak openly about what they see. So whistleblowers really are, for me, are a sense of, or give me a a sense of hope and encouragement about the future, that you do have people who are mobilised by their conscience and willing to stand up to power and willing to go public. The tragedy is that these people risk their careers, perhaps their mental health, by revealing information, but the general public just shrugs their shoulders and just looks for the next lot of sporting results. Mm. So it's it's two sides of the coin here. You've got to have people with a a clear conscience who are willing to stand up to power, but at the same time, you've got to have a, a concerned general public who, when they do hear the information, actually want to do something about it. And remember, that was Daniel Ellsberg's disappointment, that he was risking his career and his life to publish information about the wrongdoing of US governments and yet the general public were not up in arms necessarily. Some were already up in arms because of the war, but a lot of others just remained indifferent Mm. to it all. So it's two sides of the same coin. You need the whistleblowers, but you also need an engaged general public who are outraged by the information they're hearing.
0: Yeah, well, like you said, unfortunately, it's not until it directly affects people that they have a say.
1: Exactly. Thanks for your time, (laughs) Keith Souter. Thank you.
0: Global Truths is presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Sasha Barber Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nicolich.